of us are familiar with the WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? And uh, I think it's a, a tremendous question. We should ask ourselves, Lord, what would you do in this situation? We want to be like you. The life of a disciple is somebody who is growing more and more to be like Jesus. And we should ask at all times, how would Jesus want us to react and respond? And of course, the answer is found in the person of Jesus, how he lived, what he did. Found in the Gospels, found in his teachings in the New Testament. And also found in the leading of the Holy Spirit who works within our lives, who works within our hearts. And so, a great question. But I want to ask a slightly different question today. What would Jesus say? As we shall see, our speech, what we say, is so, so important. We should have a conscience about our conversation. We should be always concerned to be glorifying God by what we say. Very, very significant. So what would Jesus say? I'm not suggesting we're going to make some bracelets here and sell them, but if anybody does that, remember, it was my idea, all right? <laughs> I, I got there first. And in a way, this um, series that I'm proposing uh, follows on from a message I delivered a few weeks ago entitled, The Miracle of the New Covenant. And at that time, I said there's a second part to this message um, about how that miracle works within us. And uh, actually, well, this is that second part, but it is a whole series in its own right. What would Jesus say? Now, the miracle of the new covenant is that God takes away the old heart, the heart of stone, that dead, cold, stony, hard-hearted thing on the inside of us that's unable to respond to God, unable to sense God, unable to follow God, and God says, I am going to do a new thing. I'm going to put a new heart within you and a new spirit in you. I'm going to take away that old stony heart and give you a new soft heart, a heart that is flesh, fleshly and tender, not fleshly in the negative sense, but fleshly in the sense of not being hard and stony. And that's the miracle of the rebirth. And the Bible shows us how utterly essential it is to receive this new heart, to receive this new life. It's utterly essential to be born again. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And today, there's not so much emphasis on being born again. People say, well, I believe. Okay, a lot of people believe, even the devil believes. But what about your heart? Has your heart been changed? And every true follower of Jesus Christ has had their heart changed. And that makes all the difference because the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. That's the miracle of the new covenant. Now, what I want to go on to talk about is what happens when you've received this new heart. The first thing that happens is your mouth gets converted. The Bible speaks about having a circumcised lips. Isaiah's big problem was, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, my lips are uncircumcised. But when God meets with you, not only does he circumcise your heart, but he circumcises your mouth. And you learn a new language. Your mouth gets converted. And uh, this means that the, the new heart that God has given us begins to affect us. And the first thing it does is affect this. What happens from here? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, as, as Jesus said. We'll come to that in a moment. But there is a wonderful verse in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which says in the New King James Version, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. NIV says, Guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. What is happening here on the inside will begin to affect how you think, what you say, and what you do. And he says, above all things, guard your heart. What would Jesus say is a question, really, that has to do with godly Christian communication. And uh, we're, we're very keen on this topic here in this church, and in fact, I can name five of our modules 
in our Bible school that are taught in the daytime and also in the evenings, which is to do with communication. One, compassionate communication. The right in the middle of that right now, that, that course. Then there is effective communication to see how important it is to learn how to be a good communicator in your home, your family, in your marriage. I think in marriage, communication comes first. Nearly all the problems in marriage can be traced back to poor communication coming out of hearts that need some healing, and need some forgiveness, and need some love, and need some grace, but not only in our home, in our place of work. Can you imagine that sometimes the way you come across and how you speak and what you do actually counts against you for promotion? I'm not saying if you've failed promotion is because you're a bad communicator. What I'm saying is that we need to know how to have our, uh, our, our words seasoned with salt and have gracious communication coming from our mouths and to have our mouth filled with the new language of God's Word, confessing and speaking and declaring God's Word, expressing the values that come from God's Word, and it so, makes such a big difference in our lives. In Matthew chapter 12, passage where I re referred earlier what Jesus was saying, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. He is speaking in the context of the negative, destructive, judgmental, religious people of his day. Now we know that in our day, there's no such thing as a negative, judgmental, critical Christian, is there? Ah, you don't know how to, how to handle it. Let me put it another way and make it easier for you. Uh, would you agree that there are, there's no such thing on the planet today as negative, critical, harsh, judgmental, religious people? Would you agree? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, religion really produces a lot of negative, judgmental, critical people. And sad to say, there are quite a few Christians that we know need to have this, these lips converted. Is that not right? Now then, Jesus is speaking and teaching exactly this point, and he says, Matthew 12, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Very simple principle. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So he's saying you need not just to be religious, you need to have your life changed. You need to have your heart changed. You need to have that old tree uprooted and a new tree planted that was gonna, is going to produce fruit in your life. And then he goes on to say, verse 34, brood of vipers. Hmm. Now then, here's Jesus. And he's using his language very, very carefully. In a moment, he's going to show how that people can have poison in their mouth. And they can have the poison of asps. And when they speak, they spill poison out and, and, and pollute. Has anybody met anybody like that? <laughs> All right. So now we can understand Jesus' brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. NIV says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you are full of to overflowing, it's going to overflow, first of all, out of your mouth. Your mouth is the overflow of your heart. So it's not just about controlling what you say. It is also about learning to find God's goodness and God's grace on the inside, to find the healing in your life so that even though you might be hurt or disappointed, you get better and not bitter. And that what comes out of your mouth are words of blessing. When people curse you, you bless them. When they double curse you, you double bless them. And you keep on going until God really does bless them. Amen and amen. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every, for every idle word 
may, men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. One extraordinary teaching. See how important it is to get a grip of this, this little thing here. How important it is to set our speech in the right direction, to align our speech with what God is doing in our hearts. Everywhere in the Bible the testimony of this is found. Psalm 141 verse 3, the psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, I, I don't like what comes out of here sometimes. And I, I need you to help me. Help me, Lord. Help me so that my speech will glorify you. My speech will bless others. My speech will edify, will not destroy. Help me, Lord, that no idle word is going to cause problems. When Jesus speaks about an idle word, why every idle word is, is going is, to be, be judged? Because of it, it, it indicates what's going on in, in, inside. That's it, you see, because some people know how to talk the talk. Have you met people who can talk the talk? They don't walk the walk, but they talk the talk. Some people can talk for the kingdom of God, let alone Britain. Uh, and you listen to them, and you kind of say, well, at face value, what they're saying is right, but they are hiding. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that whatever they're saying, what's coming out of their mouth, isn't really what's going on inside. And you cannot keep that up forever. Sooner or later, something is going to slip out that will truly reveal what's going on inside you. And the psalmist says, God, I don't like what I say. There are times when I'm ashamed of what comes out of my mouth. God, help me. And I hope that you, together with me today, are praying that same prayer. God, help me. Help me. Keep a watch over the door of my lips. Job, chapter 27 and verse 4. Now, Job is one of the heroes of the Old Testament, heroes of patience, heroes of faith, and my, 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 didn't he go through it. He got all the problems that came into his life, read the story, and uh, he was eventually, he was very, very ill and terrible state, and his friends came to comfort him. And the only thing they did which was good was for the first three days they said nothing. And it was downhill after that. As soon as they opened their mouths to comfort Job, they added insult to injury. And here's what they were saying. Job, we feel so bad for you. You are going through so many problems. There must be some gross sin in your life. And for the rest of the book, they're attacking Job. They are criticizing Job. They are judging Job, all because they believe that something has gone wrong in his life and, uh, and that's why he's suffering. Now, we know that bad things happen to good people. Hello? Bad things can happen to good people. <laughs> and even some good things can happen to some bad people. We won't go there. All right. <laughs> good, bad things can happen to good people. Now, what I would say is, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Have you ever been there? And the people who come to console you end up criticizing you. They sit with you, tell me how bad it is. Oh, it's so bad, oh, bad. Well, why are you complaining? But you asked me how bad it was. No, you have to glorify God. That's what you need to do. And they go from there and they start saying, do you know what they said to me? Oh, they said this, they said that. Oh, it's terrible. And soon it becomes gossip and it exaggerated all over the place. And we have destroyed somebody just by what we say. And the Bible says that you are your brother's keeper, yes? You are your brother's keeper. What your brother is going through is your business at a level. But it's not an invitation. It is not a license to pry into people's lives. It's certainly not a license to repeat private conversations. 
It's certainly not a license to gossip about other people, all in the name of, well, I am my brother's keeper. This is not a license to moralize, to pry, to criticize, to gossip, to accuse, and to judge. But oh, something's got to happen. You know, going back to WWJD, what would Jesus do? This article is sold all over the world in Christian bookshops. And do you know something? This may shock you. Get ready. But in Christian bookshops, a lot of stuff goes missing. Did you know that? All over the world. And you know what the number one stolen property from a Christian bookshop globally is? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Hey, uh, Kensington, we have a problem. Now, we can laugh at that, be shocked at that, because we know it's not right, yes? We know that if you want to do what Jesus did, you don't steal. I mean, it's, you know, it's very obvious. And if you say, I want to do what Jesus does, it means that you're going to acknowledge that some changes have got to come in your life. You've got to get on top of some stuff and begin to grow daily to be more like Jesus. And we have that kind of as, a, as an emphasis. And, and a, a lot of Christians kind of have a conscience about that. But when it comes to what we say, I find it extremely rare to find a single believer that has a conscience about what comes out of their mouth. I mean, for example... Somebody gets into difficulty, right? The Bible says, when you see your brother trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, how do you behave? Restore in a spirit of gentleness and watch yourself. Watch yourself lest also you be, be tempted. So that's the right way of responding. But what happens so often with this is we hear about something, don't even check out whether it's true or not, and we repeat it, and we start judging and start criticizing because it makes us feel superior. Now, if you are criticizing somebody who has sinned or whom you don't agree with or you have a question mark over, you are not making yourself more spiritual than them by criticizing them. You are actually far less spiritual than them. Because it's easy to criticize. When you criticize, you stand in, in judgment over the top. And you say, I'm better than you. I'm speaking badly of you, but I'm better than you, even though you are breaking every rule in the book. Amen? Hallelujah. No wonder David prays for deliverance from such kind of talking. Psalm 140, verses 1 to 3. Here is King David, and he's talking about his kingdom, and, and of course... Every kingdom has enemies. And so for us today, the kingdom of God, there are enemies of the kingdom. And the problem is, there are far too enemies within. Enemies on the outside, we can understand. But enemies from within is something very, very different. So David says, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. Violent men. Violence. Do you know you don't have to have, use your fist, or a knife, or a gun, or a baseball bat to be violent. All you have to do is use this. Violent talk. And this is what he says. These people, they plan evil things in their hearts. Can you see evil speaking comes from an evil heart. And if you are speaking evil, then you is evil right there at that moment. Bad grammar, good theology. <laughs> All right? Who plan evil things on their hearts. They continue, continually gather together for war. It's extraordinary how people keep company with one another on the basis of a common hatred. Criticism and negativity and judgmentalism that flows in and around church life are people who group together because they together have evil intention to tear down a ministry, to criticize a church, to destroy their brothers and sisters. Wow. Verse 3, they sharpen their tongues like, like a serpent. 
and the poison of asps is under their lips. Violent talk, destructive, poisonous talk, killing people's joy, destroying people's hopes, dreams, and aspirations, ruining their reputation, destroying families, killing ministries, negative, carping, critical, judgmental talk, all under a cloak of spirituality. Well, you are your brother's keeper, and that means don't pry, pray. Don't pry, pray. Don't tear down, build up. And so, if the first thing to be converted, having received a new heart, is your mouth, what does that look like? Let me show you. What is this new way of speaking? First of all, we're going to talk about salvation, the word of faith. See how this works from the very beginning, from the very moment you're born again. What do you do? You confess Christ. You learn to say, Jesus is Lord, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. How powerful is that? Romans 10, verses 8 to 10. Here, Paul is describing how the gospel operates in people's lives, and he's building up to this great exhortation that we should carry the good news to the ends of the earth. And he talks about how easy it is to reach out and grab it, how easy it is to open your heart to Jesus, how easy it is for you to be saved today if you're not saved, if you don't have the assurance in your heart that if you died today, you go to heaven, listen up, because it's right here. This is the word of faith, the word of the gospel. How does it operate? Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, the word in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what is it? Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So how are we saved? We are saved by believing in our heart and the first thing that get converted is the mouth, whereas before the name of Jesus was maybe some religious figure, some prophet perhaps, or maybe some word of blasphemy, or some name that you could recognize, but you never knew him. But when you come to faith in Christ and you believe in your heart, your mouth gets converted, and instead of cursing Jesus, you bless him. Instead of dishonoring him, you honor him, and you say, Jesus is Lord. First thing to be converted is your mouth. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So can you see, we hook on to God's promise of salvation by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that confession flows out of a heart that's been changed. That's the first fruit that comes on the tree when your life has been changed. But it doesn't end there. If we are following the process of how New Testament people came to Christ, we were talking about repenting, believing, being baptized in water, and receiving the Holy Spirit. And at every one of these, the mouth is so important. When you are water baptized, you are baptized, what? On the confession of your faith. In other words, you make a good confession. It's something that you declare. I declare that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I'm following him in the waters of baptism. Believer's baptism. You can't confess that until you're born again. So get the order right. Whatever happened to you before you were a believer is not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is believer's baptism, made on the confession of your faith, not on the, on the faith of your mother or your father, your godparents or your grandparents or, or whoever other parent. No, it's on your confession. And that's why what well, we believe here, it's you know, so important to be water baptized. But that's not the end. The Bible speaks about another baptism. We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. You're going to receive power from on high, and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it happened on the day of Pentecost. And what was the first thing that happened when they were baptized, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? What happened? God took hold of their mouth. 
and gave them a new gift of prophetic speech, a gift of speaking in tongues, which was a demonstration that the Spirit had taken grand residence of the heart, filled the heart, filled the life, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth began to speak. And it says so in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can you see, when you are full of the Spirit, it affects your speech. Don't say that you're spiritual when stuff that comes out of your mouth is not glorifying to God. It's not spiritual. No matter how right you are, how accurate you are, it's not godly. And so when God is saying the Spirit comes, He's going to take control of your mouth. And when, you're, when your mouth is under control, the whole of your body is under control. We'll see that later on in the series. A person whose, whose mouth is under control, who speaks only stuff that glorifies God and builds others up, that person is a perfect man. That person is a ripe, mature disciple. And there ain't many of them. So we have to work on this. So God says even in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that's going to happen, He's going to take control of your mouth. And then He promises this for everybody else. Peter gets up and preaches the gospel, and, and wonderful things happen, and, and he says, you know, this Jesus whom you crucified by the hands of lawless men, God has made Lord in Christ, and, and they were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do? What can we do? And he says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and goes on to say, you will be filled with the Spirit. The promise of the Father, the gift of the Spirit will be yours. And then verse 39, this is how he puts it exactly. Acts 2, 39, for the promise of the Spirit is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And that brings us right up to, up to present day. Now, I want you to notice that Peter, when he is talking about the Spirit, is actually making reference to an Old Testament Scripture. So it's always so good to know the Old Testament because you can appreciate the New Testament so much more. And this is the verse that has in his mind when he's saying this. Isaiah 59, verse 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. So why does Peter have this in his mind when he's talking about people being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues? He's saying, this is the heart of the new covenant. God comes, grips your heart, changes your heart, fills you with the Holy Spirit, and you start to speak differently. You make a confession of faith, Jesus is Lord. When the Spirit takes hold of your life, the first thing that happens is your speech comes under control. Whether it's prophetic speech, speaking in tongues, it's all to do with the same thing. Here, clearly, the reference is to a new Spirit-directed, a new Spirit-controlled speech, beginning with new tongues and leading to a life of God's Word spoken from that same Spirit-filled heart, reflecting the truths, the values, and the wisdom of God's Word. That's how we should speak. So, salvation, the Word of faith, baptism, the new language in the Spirit, going on. The promises of God, learning to say amen to the promises of God. That's a speech thing. And we direct our lives, and so much of what we experience by way of the fulfillment of the promises of God comes down to this. So listen up, because I'm sure for every single one of us, there is a promise that's outstanding. I mean, not standing out, but hasn't happened yet. <laughs> An outstanding promise that's outstanding. Uh, to use the language that was used in the, in the offering talk, Moses hasn't come down from the mountain yet on this one, all right? Listen up, because this is going to help you. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through to 21. Now here, in the beginning of the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, he has to begin by kind of 
explaining himself. He said, I know I told you I would get there. I promised to come, and I haven't kept my promise yet. But don't think that I'm ignoring my word as if I was just a man of this world. No, no, no. 2 Corinthians 1 is the passage. He said, no, 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 there was a reason. It was to spare you. And we'll come back to that on another occasion. But it leads us into this first part, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18. But as God is faithful, very significant. God is faithful. What does that mean? It means it doesn't change. He doesn't have an opinion of you one day and change it the next day. It means that he'll never leave you, never forsake you. He is always for you. Always for you. Always by your side. Always working for your good. God is faithful. And it means above all things, God will never break his word. Yet so many Christians do. Is it any wonder that we find it difficult to say amen to the promises of God when we're holding God to keep his word and we want anybody hold us to keep our word? Don't say amen, just say ouch. And then say praise the Lord, he's coming back to that another time. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. In other words, we don't say yes and mean no. We don't say yes today and no tomorrow. We are committed to our word. Very significant. That is a biblical ethic. It's almost lost in today's society. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Amen. What's he saying here? Saying God is faithful in sending Jesus. He sent him into this world that God would fulfill his promises. And he will never break his promises. And when Christ is preached, it is not a yes, no, maybe gospel. It's very unpopular today to stand up and say, Christ is Lord of this, there's absolute certainty. We can't even assert that there is such a thing as absolute truth. We live in a world where everybody says, you make up your own truth. Your truth, my truth, anybody's truth ends up to be nobody's truth. God, God's word is truth. He is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we proclaim Christ as truth, we are not entering into some kind of gray area. There is only one way to be saved. Jesus Christ is God incarnate in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He died a substitute death on the cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Where is the maybe in that? None whatsoever. So when the gospel is preached, it's preached with truth and clarity and power and conviction. But there's even more here because he goes on to say, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. Not just the salvation promises or forgiveness of sins, but every promise that God has ever made, every promise in the book is signed, sealed, and ready to be delivered in the name of Jesus Christ. Every promise, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. So if you come to pray and you say, God, I, I need something. Well, what do you need? And you might be able to articulate that need. And you find in this book for every possible need between now and when Jesus returns, there's a promise here. There's a promise in this book for you today. What are you, what are you needing from God? Are you needing guidance? Are you needing direction? What are you needing? Your help, encouragement, healing, deliverance? What do you need? There is a promise for every need. That's great news. But then it's even better because it says in Christ, God has already said yes. 
What do you need? Even before you can express it, what do you need, son? I need, yes, but haven't said it yet. Yes, well, yes, yes. He is a yes, yes, yes God. He's not this negative, critical, judgmental God that wants to kill us and destroy us. He's a God who wants to bless us, and he's made it possible in Christ. Amen and amen. So, that's God's yes. When Jesus died on the cross, God's yes was shouted out from Mount Calvary, and we can still hear it today, the echo of that yes. So, is that it? Is that all there is? No, there's more, because it speaks about an amen. Did you see that? God's yes in Christ. In him, amen to the glory of God through us. So the amen is what God has done in Christ. Sorry, the, the yes is what God has done in Christ. But the amen is down to us. Did you get that? So if Jesus died for everybody, until you say amen, Jesus died for me, you'll never be saved. Never be saved. Because his yes must be received through our amen. When you look at this, it's not human energy that does it, because it says, in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. The next verse goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. So you can read this in one of two ways. The amen is spoken by us through the Holy Spirit, or the amen is spoken through us by the Holy Spirit. It can be either. And I think it's both. Both say the same story, really, that the Holy Spirit on the inside of us witnesses to the promise of God. And when the promise of God is spoken and we hear God's amen, the Holy Spirit speaks in us and through us, amen. I'll give you another go. The Holy Spirit speaks in us and through us the amen. amen. You got it. You know, I used to think that amen was some kind of either American Christianity or maybe some African thing that it was all about, yeah, man, oh, yeah, man, yeah, amen, amen, amen. Uh, and so amen to everything. And Judas went and hanged himself, amen. <laughs> and the world is going to hell without Christ, amen. <laughs> it's kind of mindless thing. But it's not. This isn't a cultural thing. This isn't just a form of charismania or Pentecostal thinking. This is Bible. You've got to learn to say the amen to the promise of God. Because when you say the amen to the promise of God, you reach out and grab that promise. You grab it, and you grab it with this. Vous devenez tenir ferme avec la bouche. C'est pas vrai? C'est qui? Qui parle français là? Two people. Wasted all the energy for two people, three people, four people, five people. Well, my friends are watching there in France. Hallelujah. you got to take hold of the promises of God with your mouth. Yeah, that's how it is. And this is part of the new language we learn. And remember, it's got to come from your heart. It's not just, it's not just you know, vain repetition and some kind of confession, you know, where you just repeat like a parrot. Any parrot can learn the promises of God. And, 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 or even just having this, this kind of flip, you know, what do I need? Let me just see right now. Let me, what do I need? Oh, God. Oh, it's personal application in the introduction. It's not even the Bible there. Let's try again. Okay, behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to take that one. He's, he, he's not talking to me. He's talking to other people. Amen. <laughs> so I'm not talking about just this flip and point and kind of approach or mechanical repetition. I'm talking about waiting on God and saying, God, I need something. And God says, I know your need. God, I need healing. He says, yes. God, I need deliverance. He says, yes. God, I need financial provision. He says, yes. God, I need direction in my life. He says, yes. God, I need friendship in my life. He says, yes, 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 yes. But we have to learn to say amen. We've got to re-educate this. We've got to learn to re-educate this. Because normally, our self-image is so diminished that people can't even bless us. And, and God said, I want to bless you. Oh, me? No, I don't deserve it. Whoever talked about deserving? Oh, not me and the person next door. I mean, I've been in meetings when I have delivered a word of knowledge which has been immaculate, almost like x-ray vision, and described a situation in a person's life, the internal organs, everything not happening here today. And then, oh, I think that word might have been for me. 
Well, why didn't you come forward? Oh, because I thought it was probably for somebody else. You know, and sometimes you've got, if you give them their name, their birth certificate number, the amount of money they have in their wallet, everything about them, they still wouldn't believe that God wants to bless them. Let's get rid of that spirit of condemnation. God has removed it from us. He wants to bless you. Yeah. Amen. And here's how. Change this. Change this. Get this in line with God's Word. And by the way, amen is pretty much the same in most languages, but there are several words in the New Testament which particularly relate to what the Spirit does, and the New Testament writers have kept them in the original Aramaic. So, for example, amen is one of them. Hallelujah is another one. Amen, hallelujah, no two words in almost any language. So we're international with that one. Then we've got Abba. Abba, which means daddy. It's an intimate name. It's left untranslated. It's just taken directly from the Aramaic. Abba, Holy Spirit teaches us to say Abba. And there's another one, Maranatha, coming of the coming of Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit. And I guess he just loves Aramaic because whether it's hallelujah, whether it is Maranatha, whether it is Abba, or whether it is Amen, it's always the Holy Spirit teaching us to talk, teaching us to use this in a way that brings blessing and not cursing. So one more in the same line about promises. It's more about prayer, but it doesn't really matter what the heading is. It's the teaching that counts, Mark 11, verses 22 to 24. A very, very important scripture on the use of the tongue, the use of the mouth, the use of our speech, where we have to be careful and watch what we say. The story is that Jesus was walking with his disciples, noticed a fig tree. The fig tree had plenty of leaves on it, and he went to it and said, you've got leaves, no fruit. And then he cursed the fig tree. He said, let no fruit ever come from you again. I guess the disciples must have thought it was a bit strange. They didn't necessarily understand why he said it. The next day, they're walking by the same place, and Peter notices something. Do you notice how it's always Peter? So he notices this, and he says, Wow, look, Lord, the fig tree that you cursed yesterday is withered. He noticed it. Now, <clears throat> if I'd been there, if I'd been, if Jesus said, Colin, just, just explain this, I would have said, yes, Lord, everybody sit down. Well, you must understand that Jesus has nothing against fig trees. It's lack of fruit, which speaks about leafy religion but no fruit. Going right back to the Garden of Eden, if you recall, because Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed because they had sinned. They tried to cover up their own sin with leaves, fruitless leaves. And that's just like what religion has done. And all through the Bible, we know that Israel was a vine, uh, an olive tree, and all this kind of stuff. So this really is a picture of this particular historical manifestation of Israel. And God's now saying, you have rejected Messiah, and now this is the end of you, and judgment has come. And I, 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 that's how I would have done it. Aren't, aren't you glad that <laughs> I wasn't there? <laughs> Although much of what I said is a very feasible understanding as to why Jesus did it. But that was not the problem or the question that was in Peter's mind. He didn't care why Jesus did it. He wanted to know how Jesus did it. He looked at it and said, wow, Lord, the fig tree that you've cursed has withered, kind of saying, how did you do that? And implied, I'd like to have a go. <laughs> now, if that happened in many of our meetings, they would say, sit down, be quiet, how presumptuous of you. But Jesus wants us to move in the miraculous. Come on, people of God. That's the Bible. That's the Word of God. Miracles have never ceased from the pages of the Bible or the promises of God from that day until this day. We are right to seek God for the demonstration of signs and wonders and miracles. Amen and amen. amen. But Jesus took Peter at his word. And this is how he answered. 
verse 22. So Jesus answered and said, have faith in God, which literally is have the faith of God. Yes, have God's faith. <gasps> Does God need faith? <laughs> Who has more faith than God? What is faith? It's absolute confidence in God's word. That's what faith is. And who has greater confidence in God's word than God himself? So he's saying you can have a confidence in God's word. You can be absolutely sure concerning God's word into a situation. If you're walking in the spirit and you know Jesus and you know your Bible, you can declare the word of God. And God's word in your mouth is as powerful as God's word in his own mouth. Amen. Have the faith of God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whoever, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, present tense, when you pray, Believe that you receive them, and you will have them, future tense. In other words, the point of which we receive is when we pray in faith. All right? I've received, but it's not yet mine. It's not yet manifested. So what do you do between, in this time between the receiving and not yet seeing? You use this. Amen. You use this. You see, he's saying very, very clearly, you need to know the power of declaration and the confession of God's word over situations. And this is not some kind of trick of faith, prosperity, preaching. This is the Bible. Now, I know that some preachers take this and make it the whole truth. It's part of what God says in the word, but we cannot neglect it. We have got to watch what we say when we are seeking God and when we are praying. Let me tell you a story. Many, many years ago, Amanda and I were seeking to buy a tiny apartment not far from this building, not far from this, from this church building, so we could be close to the building. And uh, we had no money. And no such thing as... 100% iniquitous zero mortgage, you know, a zero deposit in those days. So we said, okay, I said, Amanda, I believe this is God. We're going we're gonna to pray. It's going to be a prayer meeting of two, you and me. And you and me are going to agree. You're going to agree with me. We're going to pray. So she said, okay. So I'm ready now. Got the whole, whole evening, whole night. Nothing else, we're going to pray. So I get ready, I do my limbering up, you know, like just going to go into the boxing ring, I'm going to do six rounds with the devil at least, but I'm going to knock him out, I'll tell you. And so I say, oh God, and he said, yes. Oh God, are you, what did you say? <laughs> yes. I, I tried to keep on praying because I didn't want to disappoint myself. I wanted to pray. I wanted to, really, I wanted to really pray. I want to show that, you know, good six hours of prayer will crack this. First sentence. Amanda was now, arms folded, smiling. I said, what are you smiling at? She said, did you hear what I hear, heard? God said, yes. She said, yes. She said, yes. No more praying. I was so disappointed. So what did we do? We turned from there to praise. Thank you, Lord. You've heard us. Amen. It's going to happen. Thank you, Jesus. And we were speaking to our mountain, not as a technique. Mountain, move. No, we were, it was flowing out of faith-filled, spirit-filled hearts, bearing witness to what God had said to us in his word by his Holy Spirit. And we praised God. We sang. We danced. It was absolutely fantastic celebration. And I can't remember the exact time, one week, two weeks. I think it was three weeks. Within that short space of time, we had everything we needed to put down a deposit on that flat. Praise God, praise God, praise God. No, we didn't talk ourselves out of the miracle. 
That was still there the next day, waking up in the morning. God was still saying yes, and we were still saying hallelujah. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. We got it, we got it, we got it, we got it. And every time, I'm sure, every time, I'm sure, we said we got it, we got it, we got it. The devil was going under and under and under and under. Not a technique, but a reality. Because when your heart is full, your mouth gets converted. Amen, amen and amen. So, what does this mean? Please have a conscience concerning your speech. Please watch what you say. This begins in your heart. Make sure your heart is full of the right stuff. Get rid of all bitterness and anger. Get rid of all that stuff that works against this conversion of the mouth. If your heart is full of bitterness, you're going to speak bitter words. If your heart is full of criticism, you're going to criticize. But if your heart is full of faith, wonderful words that latch on to God's promises will pour from your lips. You will not be those who tear down, but those who build up. You'll not be those who accuse and judge, but those who intercede and bless. Let the Holy Spirit direct your speech. Surrender your tongue to Him. I surrender all, including the tongue that I use when I sing that song. I surrender all. I surrender this, Jesus. Learn to be like Jesus. What would Jesus say? He would only speak the Father's words, only speak words of love and truth and encouragement. And in the words of the psalm, my last scripture for this morning, Psalm 19, verse 14, it's on the screen, say it together with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, will you blow through this place such a powerful wind a wind of grace, a wind of love, and a wind of joy, that we would not be comfortable for even for one second to speak a word that brings hurt or destruction or negativity or criticism, but only those words which line up with your truth and your values and your beauty and your wisdom and your glory, so that not only will we be a blessing to others, but we ourselves will walk in the blessing of God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Give Jesus a big praise. God bless you.